morning is I want to ask you to do something different that if we go to morning tea after the service try and chat with someone that wears different clothes than you so if you're wear, wearing casual clothes um, try and chat to a school student if you're uh, wearing nice formal clothes chat to Brian um, <laughs> whatever um, on the 9th of November um, 9th of November this year, we've got Alan Platt from the City Changes Institute, also the leader of the Doxedeo Church, um, responsible for uh, planting uh, Church Unite in Florida, USA. Um, actually speaking at our church, we could only get him for a Saturday morning. So we decided to do something different. We're going to combine a men's and a women's breakfast into one breakfast. Yeah. With, with a twist. We'll do the breakfast, and men afterwards, we're going to do the dishes. Yeah. I'm not hearing a lot of male celebration in that. <laughs> no. Uh, the, the ladies have a special function that, or a special outreach that they're preparing for straight after. But this, um, this is a significant moment. Um, Alan was responsible for actually positioning the spheres of influence um, as a ministry philosophy in South Africa and um, um, Florida, USA. Um, incredible stories of, of how the engagement in the different spheres of society, understanding the finished work of Christ and rethinking church and its influence actually changed cities and is still changing cities. So I don't want to oversell it, but it's going to be an incredible morning um, where Alan will speak um, on just how do we engage our world from the finished work of Christ. So don't miss it. Five dollars. It'll be a great breakfast and a few things running after that. So join us um, for that. Now, we're in week two of our House Rules series. Last week, um, <clears throat> uh, Mark Hodges spoke on the household God. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I want to ask you just to gone to the web, was a brilliant sermon, basically just helping us understand that God's transforming work in an individual can translate into a household, and the fact that God actually moves in the space of, of redeeming households and families. Um, part of the idea of this sermon came from Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2. Now, there's a whole lot that we need to understand, and luckily this is not the first sermon ever, so we can assume that some of us has a bit of a grasp on the book of Ephesians where Paul comes and actually lays down a whole foundation leading up to this point on our calling, the role of the church, how we were saved out of darkness, our positioning um, at the right hand of God the Father, the fact that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, uh, the reality that the church is God's instrument of actually showing earth and heaven what's God, what God's intent is all about. There's, there's, there's incredible realities and, and revelation in the book of, of Ephesians. But then in chapter 5, he swings to the more practical stuff. And, and again, we don't have time to go into every practical expression of what Paul speaks of, but we want to connect the, the, these two verses to the understanding of our house rules. Now, those of you who followed the series House Rules um, would know that House Rules is all about the fact that you get four or five different rules that the owner of the house gives you, and then other people has to come, they've got to bring that to life. And at the end of it, you get judged by your ability to interpret the rules into the redoing of the house. Good fun. Um, sometimes. Better than the block. Just go channel seven. Um, <laughs> Paul comes and he starts with this. He says, watch what God does. 
I just thought about that this morning when I read that verse again. Just the implication based on everything that Paul just said in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Paul actually assumes that it's possible to imitate him, to know what God's heart is, to actually have insight into what drives God's heart for people. When Peterson gets hold of this, he says, he uses the, the, the concept of imitate God by saying, watch what God does, and then you do it. Something about the practical expression of life that it's not just our church experience or our eternity experience, but our actual everyday life needs to reflect our imitation, or, or us imitating God in everything we do. So he says, watch what God does and then you do it like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Now, the other day I walked into the kitchen and Nicole had the milk. And she was drinking it like this. And I thought, you can't do that. No one in this house is allowed to do that. Except me. <laughs> that little concept that those who make the rules break the rules um, kind of thing. Um, that, that's what I do. And when I said to her, you're not allowed to do it. She said, but dad, that's the only way you drink milk. And I'm like, uh. So like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, that is the interesting thing, um, that whatever we model gets replicated, whether we like it or not. <laughs> but then Paul comes and he says, mostly what God does is love you, so keep company with him, abide in him, this whole picture of the tree, stay connected to him. When it comes to your real life, your everyday life, you can't disconnect your abiding with God, um, with your actual living this life. So mostly what God does is love, love you. Keep company with Him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. If there's any moment that we think, oh, I'm not sure what God wants, guess what we do? Go and look at Christ's example. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. <laughs> he didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of Himself to us. So in essence, love is this giving of ourselves. It's this ability to say, it's not about me, it's about you. Now, I read two jokes. You guys ready for two fresh jokes? Fresh of <laughs> A man and his wife were sitting in the living room discussing um, a living will. So just so you know, he said, I never want to live in a vegetative state depending on some machine and fluids from a bottle. If that ever happens, just pull the plug, the man said. His wife got up, unplugged the TV, and threw out all the beer. <laughs> oh, so, got to balance it a bit. Um, a married couple was celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary, and at the party, everyone wanted to know how they managed to stay married for so long in this day and age. The husband responded, when we, first, uh, uh, when we were first married, we came to an agreement I would make all the major decisions, and my wife would make all the minor decisions. And in 60 years, we have never needed to make a major decision. <laughs> Just love that. Love it. Um, but there's something about families, um, when it comes to families, that we need to recognize the fact that families, family life, family values are eroding. That there's something of a process, the slow steady 
constant slide of erosion that is eating away at the heart of the construct of family and household and just the connection. When I looked at the definition of erosion, it defines it as diminishing or destroying by degrees. Something that eats into or eats away by a slow process of destruction. To cause to deteriorate, deteriorate or to disappear. And one thing that's interesting, just thinking about families, households, just this, this incredible community that God birthed us into is the fact that when erosion takes place, it's always slow, it's always silent, and it's always subtle. You never see erosion taking place like this. It's always slow, silent, and subtle. And I reckon that's the way family values deteriorate. Deteriorates slowly, silently, and subtly. And there's this moment where somewhere in the journey, there's this big reveal, where there's a sudden realization about how did we get here? We started off there, but how did we come to this place? It's because erosion is always slow, silent, and subtle. It's like my hairline. <laughs> Didn't fall out in a day. It happened over years. But one morning, after I woke up, I looked at myself in the mirror and I realized, what's happened? <laughs> and I felt old, uh, even though I was 21 years bad. It, it happens over time. But thinking about erosion, there's, there's, there's an understanding of how erosion actually plays into our family life. But listen to what two great um, studies just came up with. Michael Lenner, um, he wrote a book um, on the politics of meaning, all about restoring hope and possibility in an age of cynicism. He said, family, so this is not Christian, this is secular work. He said, family is important because it is the only institution in a contemporary society that is unashamedly committed to love and caring as its primary purpose. Love that. Um, Theodora Um, she's a, um, a social worker um, and um, has a lot to do with policies on government level in the United States. She made this comment. She said, programs and services designed to support families focus almost exclusively on mothers and children. But the cornerstone of the family, the relationship of the couple, has been essentially ignored. That when the erosion, when the big reveal on the erosion happens, we want to we pull all the resources into the mothers and into the children, not realizing that there's something that could be way more fruitful if we actually invested right in the beginning, defining and supporting and capacitating the relationship between the husband and the wife the carers of that family unit. So family basically is an institution that is unashamedly committed to love and caring as its primary function with a cornerstone of this institution, the relationship between a husband, wife, a father, and a mother. Now we're going to deal with some aspects dealing with um, the marriage in the series and some aspects dealing with parenting, but basically we just want to challenge some, some ideas on the construct of family life. One of the interesting things um, that, that I realize, and I think a lot of us, is we enter both of these relationships or positions 
with little or no training at all. So did you read three or four books before you got married? <laughs> Not buying cars, so that doesn't count, man. Um, or if, did you equip yourself? <laughs> or was equipping part of the program? When you had your first child, the whole parenting journey, did we enter into it fully equipped? Or was entering into it part of the equipping process? I remember when Salita was born, um, she was diagnosed with jaundice. And the um, doctor came and spoke to me and Melise, and we knew nothing. So the doctor came and said, listen, we're going to have to keep your baby here for the next three, four days. Um, she can't go home. And I'm like, <laughs> and as the doctor walked away, both me and Melise fell in each other's arms. And we cried uncontrollably. It's the worst thing in the world. Other parents that had kids looked at us thinking, oh, what's this? <laughs> when Nicole was born, same thing happened. Doctor came to us, said, we've got to keep her in for a few days. And it's stuff. She had other complications, so we couldn't focus on that. When Michaela was born, she had the same condition, and it's like, well, we're going to send her home. Just put her in the sun for a few days. It's all good. Um. <laughs> so they send a nurse out once every four days. Just make sure that you've got her in the sun an hour, and it's like sunscreen. No, no sunscreen. Just put her in the sun. Um, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's different. We didn't enter into this whole parenting journey knowing everything. But over time, um, this excitement of being parents, over time, this excitement of being married actually starts eroding slowly, silently, subtly. Because we think that just being in it is enough. But family life, marriage, parenting needs a lot of intentional engagement. See, one thing that we see is erosion in family life makes a difference. I don't know if you know a story, <laughs> hearing about a dad or a mom or whoever that went through a crisis in family life, it makes a difference. We all want to make a difference. The fact is we're not always intentionally preparing ourselves for the difference we want to make. But allowing erosion in your family will make a difference at some point or another. And there's something in this that, that, that it's possible to actually stop the process of erosion if we are very intentional and strategic about it. But most people only act once the bell has been rung with the big reveal. And I dream about the fact that, that in a community of faith like this, that we would become so intentional about the connection in our households, our families, just actually coming to the point where we allow ourselves the opportunity to dream, not just hoping that erosion won't take effect, but actually dreaming about the fact that what could be possible if we become way more intentional about the people closest to us? Could it be that God placed you in that unit as a primary point of influence, first and foremost? That when Paul deals about eldering and leading churches and, and going out and changing the world, he says, anyone that wants to do that on a leadership level, where do you start? Start at home. That the most important unit to influence the people that are closest to you need to be affected by, affected by your life more than anyone else. And that's the desire of it. Because sooner or later, if the big reveal comes, most of us act as if, this was a big surprise. There's nothing 
that triggers erosion in families more than individual brokenness. Can I say that again? There's nothing that triggers erosion in families more than individual brokenness. The problem is um, that individual brokenness becomes a doorway for erosion in our families. Now, we love broken people. And if you read the Bible, Jesus loved broken people. But guess what he did with their brokenness? He healed them. Contrary to something that we're seeing at the moment in society where, where, where we've almost made brokenness fashionable. That brokenness has become a destination, not something to consider healing for. Where it's in the state that this is my brokenness and because I'm broken, everyone has to adapt to my brokenness. Jesus enters the broken. And guess what he does? He uses moments of transformation the love, the heart of God, the supernatural power of God at times, and He brings healing to the broken. There's a moment in life where we've got to consider that if you discover that there's a level of brokenness, and can I just say, that's every one of us, so don't sit here thinking that, oh, I'm so good, because <laughs> this is happening to Brother Paul next to me. It's not that. Every one of us sitting here has a doorway of brokenness that if you're not dealing with it at this moment, it's going to become a destination for you. And if that becomes a destination, that destination opens a doorway to erosion that will affect you, but also those closest to you. Big part of this is actually considering the fact that, that, that the transforming work of Christ in our lives wants to bring healing to our brokenness. One of the most important words in the Old Testament was the word shalom. That meant healing, a reconstruction of everything that was broken. In our lives. So the word peace be with you, shalom be with you, is bringing together everything that was broken until it is healed. Now one of the reasons why, um, or that we can see where erosion has taken place is when there is no, there are no guardrails in our family unit. It's almost as if society defines for us what is acceptable and what is not. And the values that we live by are so aligned and so congruent with what sits out there that the guardrails that I think the Bible put in place and um, that was designed by God for us aren't there. And we get, when we get to the speedy humps or the, the big curves in life, in life, we have no guardrails to protect us. I think one of those things, and I don't want to go too deep into that because all of us know, I think when, when there's erosion that is stepped in, we, we know. But think about the effect of media, social media. The way we choose to relax as family. We had a moment yesterday where we just took bikes and went out um, mountain biking, me and the two girls. And it was one of the best family moments ever. Although everything was dirty. <laughs> it was muddy. It was out there. Actually not sitting in front of a television saying that this is our relaxing moment. And I'm not against TV. It's actually good. Uh, we watched Toy Story last night. Great principles of, of life. Um, so I'm not against it. But if your primary way of relaxing happens in front of a screen, <laughs> erosion has taken place. If there's no guardrails in terms of what you're allowing your kids to engage with in terms of their screen, it's not, is erosion coming? It has already set in. It's already in play in your life. Because there's this principle of guardrails that, that the mature, the responsible actually creates the context for the development of the next generation. It is critical 
for us to, to engage in. Erosion, primarily, if you, if you go into the science of it, is triggered by exposure. Erosion is, ex is triggered primarily by overexposure to elements. Exposure without protection. And over time, that, was, that which was fruitful, life-giving, um, that actually created beauty, erodes away, and all that is left, left is the dry and brittle course of the surface. And I reckon so many people live in that state, that we've lost what is fruitful, what is life-giving, and we th when we think of our family construction, the only way and the only resource that we have to give from is dry <laughs> and brittle. We've got, to re we've got to rethink that. So what erosion reveals, and this was interesting, just in my own thinking, um, is erosion reveals deterioration in three critical areas, lostness, brokenness, and pain. Lostness, the definition, an erosion of our faith. A lot of people um, would consider the fact that we live in a relative society, the fact that we want to move away from, 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 from guiding principles, a worldview that actually sets the boundaries for us to live by. Because everything has been challenged to a point and, and to so many degrees, we live in a society where things are so relative that we can't say, this is what I believe and let's go for it. It's different to what Joshua said, me and my household, what will we do? We will serve. This, these guiding principles of faith will actually unite us. It will tie us together. One thing that, that, that faith, this structure of belief does, it unites people. If we don't have this structure of belief that unites us, our personalities or our brokenness or <laughs> our perception becomes the basis that we try to unite. And guess what happens then? Family life is all about what's different, not about what connects us. So there's, there's an erosion of our faith, and it creates a lostness in this relative society. So many people are clueless about what's the thing. And it's not just a set of rules, it's a person called Jesus Christ. There's an erosion of hope that triggers brokenness. If you're, the structure of belief isn't in place, your ability to hope for the future won't be there. And if our hope erodes, the only thing that we replace it with is fear and anxiety. That suddenly, we don't have something to hope in because it's not earth in what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ does. And because hope is centered on a person, not just a set of rules, not just a set of principles, but a person, if that is, becomes relative, then suddenly our ability to hope for what's coming deteriorates and it erodes and the only thing we are left with is fear and anxiety and the last one it releases pain the erosion of love which just triggers a self-centeredness that replaces a christ-centeredness when jesus spoke of it he said um the greatest commandment just think about it the biggest thing that you can do is to love god love others as you love yourself what happens when we take self and we put it in the beginning? What happens to our family? What happens to society? What happens to any relationship where God isn't the starting point, but where we become the starting point? It erodes 
everything we have. And, and it's in these moments where our lostness, our brokenness, and our pain in families actually comes to a head in moments of conflict. Don't you love it? Anyone had some conflict this week in your family life? <laughs> it's good, I reckon, all of us. Three times a day, it's like, have, have a good meal. See, see conflict is such a life-giving thing in families. My definition of conflict is it's growth trying to happen. But if you are lost in your lostness, your brokenness, and your pain, conflict becomes very accusive. It becomes something that almost takes away from us. Where in essence, conflict in its reality is just growth trying to happen. And it's in this space that, that I want to ask you to think about conflict differently. See, a lot of people would, would go through conflict as it's almost the end of the discussion, but what if in the moments of conflict, it actually reveals our lostness, our pain, and our brokenness? What if in the moments of conflict where we feel so convinced that we are right and that we have the thing, that it actually points the finger to us, that you want to fight this <laughs> because there's something lost in you or something broken in you or some level of pain inside of you? So dealing with conflict is a question that we've got to grapple with. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, a home filled with strife and division destroys itself. If, if there isn't this unifying factor. So I want to end with three quick things. And I'm just going to run through that. The reason for conflict, why do we have conflict? How do we respond to conflict? And how do we resolve conflict? Now, reason for conflict, listen to what James says. He says, do you not know where your fights and arguments come from? <laughs> yes. My mother-in-law, it's easy. <laughs> you missed that part. <laughs> no. Do you not know where your fights and arguments come from? They come from your, what? Selfish de desires that war where? Within you. There's something selfish inside of us that wants things that isn't healthy. And we will fight to whatever extent to force our environment to adapt to our selfish um, desires. So realize that in the moment of conflict, the reason for that is, the reason why you would push the envelope until people break is because there's something selfish inside of you. And if that's the case, then conflict is a great revelation of either your lostness or your brokenness or your pain and the fact that you've been eroding for many, many seasons. So how do we respond to conflict? Well, David comes and he says, search me, O God. And know my heart. Remember what's happening deep inside of you. And he says, test my thoughts. When it comes to conflict, there's five different ways that we can deal with it. My way at all costs. So I'm not giving up ground. You will listen to me. Or there's people that go with the no way. I'm not in getting involved in conflict. I'm just walking away. We won't ever deal with it. Or that's your way. Well, we're in conflict, so I'll just give you whatever you want, and you can just go and deal with it. Or the halfway, well, it's all about compromise, or the power of the third alternative. Could conflict reveal something so deep in all of us that could actually bring healing to the lostness, the pain, and the brokenness, that both of us could find a sense of healing in our coming together? So how do we resolve? One of the most important things in terms of resolving conflict in families and ensuring that our family becomes a place of life-giving is understanding that everything in our Christian walk, every um, thought connecting to us making a difference starts with us 
discovering that Christ did something for us. Otherwise, it's just going to be a how-to message. Realizing that peace has been given to us. Paul comes in Romans 5 verse 1 to 3, says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. When I read this, I asked myself the question, Clinton, are there moments in your life where you are so aware of the conflict that you miss the peace? And it was an easy answer, yes. That I miss the moments of peace because I'm so aware of the conflict. But the reality of that, if I'm aware of the conflict, I'm also so aware of my own selfish desire. And coming to that point, actually saying, God, thank you <laughs> that you've made peace with me. And this year has been especially um, a challenging one for, for me and Malise, with certain things going around and us trying to, to find peace in a, in a year where things just did this all over. And it's interesting in, in prepping for this that God just challenged me, saying, hey, find your peace in me before trying to make peace there. Some of us has never done this. We're actually in church, but we've never come to a point that we realize that we have been made right with God, that we've embraced what God has done for us. We think just good principles and, and nice values would save us, but there's a reality that it starts with you embracing what Christ did for you. It's because of our faith in Christ, uh, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserving privilege where we now stand. Peace becomes a place that we stand in. It becomes a platform, it becomes a foundation that we function from. And he says, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. How did Christ enter into God's glory? Through suffering. So there's this reality that suffering will be part if we want to share in God's glory. And that's why Paul says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials or if you run into your spouse or your children that has other ideas than you. For we know that they help us develop endurance. <laughs> Start by resolving your conflict with God. Second one is change your focus. Um, understand the difference between my needs, your needs, and our needs. That everyone enters into this relationship with what do I want out of it? And guess what happens if two people engage this conversation from what I want, driven by their own lostness, their own pain, and their own brokenness? And it's, it's a recipe for disaster. But what if we enter into it, realizing that I'm going to enter into this relationship, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, that love is all about giving, not getting. Philippians 2, verse 3, and 3 to 5 says, don't be selfish. Don't center life around yourself. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others, too, and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the, same, the kind that was shown by Jesus Christ, that Jesus entered our world. Established ground rules, <laughs> um, I reckon, is, is one of the things that, that's helped us entering into 19 years of marriage, which sometimes still feels young. Well, one of the decisions that me and Melise made from the very beginning is that the word divorce will never come out of our mouth. Um, that we will close the back door from the word go. It's not an option. Um, that there's things that will happen, there's challenges that will come, but we won't open the back door. Because the reality of life, and there are people that I want to say has gone through divorce for valid reasons. I don't want you to take this with condemnation. 
somewhere in our life, we've got to find ways of closing back doors. Because if we keep the back door open in certain things, it's easier to run rather than to go for life. Philippians, um, <coughs> sorry, uh, Ephesians 4 verse 31 says, stop being mean. Think about how you engage arguments, um, which is a specifically difficult one for me. Because in the moment of conflict, I vent out of my anger. Melise is different. She goes into quietness. The worst thing for me initially um, when, when we started this whole marriage journey was realizing that in the moment of conflict, I wanted to get away and she wanted love. She wanted to hold me. And I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do right now. I'm not hugging you. I'm angry at you. <laughs> so we had to even define ground rules in that. So when there's conflict, just give me 10 minutes just to go and settle. Don't try and fix it immediately, because if you fix it immediately, I'm going to say stuff that I'm going to, I'm going to feel sorry about. So let's create a ground rule. Just give me my moment. Just to calibrate, just to grapple with, and then come back and say sorry, because it usually should end in that. Uh, <laughs> it's about making a habit of making peace in our lives. Realizing that that's one of the key ground rules is make a habit of making peace. When Paul speaks of it, he says, don't go to bed angry. Again, that was one of the natural things that Melise brought to our life. She will not go to sleep if we are angry at one another. She'll wait until <laughs> we get to have the conversation. Um, she'll allow me my little space. But there's something in that principle, that, that forgiveness and making peace and fixing what you broke. If we do it quickly, we stop the process of erosion. If we allow it to fester and to linger, erosion sets in. And when that happens, when you realize that erosion has set in, ask for advice. Proverbs 13 verse 10 says, pride leads to arguments, but be humble, take advice, and become wise. Sometimes the solution doesn't come from the two people in conflict. There's a gift of the third party involving themselves in that space. So I'm going to ask <coughs> the worship team to come forward. While they're coming up, just listen to this old proverb. It says, when you throw mud, you lose ground. Beautiful. <laughs> when you throw mud, you lose ground. I want you to look at this picture. I believe that in this series, God wants to open hearts in people's lives. Something about Isaiah 10 verse 12 where Isaiah comes and he says, plow up the hard ground of your hearts that fruitfulness and flourishing could take place again. I'm not sure where you are and sometimes what we are at home isn't always what we are outside of home. I think the biggest desire of my life is to be integrous in both of those. That what people see on the inside is what they see on the outside. But certain things happen in our homes and we allow erosion and the dryness and the brittleness and the hardness to settle in. One of the things that I want to ask you to consider over this next four or five weeks, and we're going to go into some real practical stuff with some great speakers coming in to deal with this topic, is to ask you the question, isn't this a season where you've got to grapple first and foremost about breaking the dryness 
and the brittleness in your own life. Plow up the hard ground of your heart. Come to a place where you say this hardness, this erosion is going to cost me much more than I'm worth, that I want to pay at the end. And it's not worth it. Can we start the process of rewriting the story of erosion and allowing God's work to do something transformative in it? Some of our pain stems from our heritage, what our parents did. Some of our pain stems from broken relationships or just from challenges in life. It comes from all different areas and it creates a hardness. One of the things that I believe God wants to do in your life this morning is to break it open. Say, I wanna, I wanna bring my life, my water, my flourishing, my fruitfulness, my love, my grace, my care into your life. But for that to happen, I wanna ask you, would you open your heart? Would you allow me to come? Let's close our eyes. Some people sitting here that's, that's never actually made the commitment to say, I want to be a Christ follower. I want to make peace with God. God, I want to use what you did for me on the cross as the starting point of my relationship with everyone else, starting with the people in my family. So I want to ask if you're at that place. I'm not going to expose you in any way, shape, or form, but I'm going to ask you to come and have a chat to me afterwards. But if you're at that place, don't you just want to pray this prayer after me? Just say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Come and make me new. Give me a fresh start. Help me to live from the life that you've given me in Christ. Forgive my sins. Heal my brokenness. Help me in my future. In Jesus' name. For all of us sitting here, I want to ask you, just think about this. Your life will make a difference. The, the question is, what difference do you want to make? So you will make a difference. That's not, a, that's not an option. You will make a difference. What difference do you want to make? Part of it starts by actually acknowledging that I have a level of lostness, pain, or brokenness in my own life. I need to reconsider how faith, hope, and love could reconstruct me, could renew me, bring something new to me so that I can make a positive difference starting with my family and part of that is just actually coming to the cross this morning just saying God I want to pray and I want to ask that your sacrifice your life your death and your resurrection would bring life to me in the practical ways of life in Jesus name can I pray for you before we go into communion let's pray Father we come to you in the name of Jesus, and together we ask for your strength. We pray that you would help us make these values, these principles from your word, not just something we hear on a Sunday, but something that we're able to make a living and real part of our lives from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Friday to Saturday. We pray that in some of the simplest conflicts in our lives, that they would be dissolved as they come up because we recognize our lostness our pain and our brokenness but also our need for faith hope and love we pray lord that some long-lasting conflicts in our lives would be resolved because of your strength and your word today we ask in jesus